Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 100, Opening Moves. Last time, on July 20th, 1936, the would-be leader of the Spanish Nationalist Rebellion, General José Sanjuro, died in an attempt to take off from a Portuguese airstrip at the rebellion's very beginning. Meanwhile, all over Spain, the two sides clashed to see who would control what. As we have seen, the initial fighting saw the Republicans hold on to central and eastern Spain, with the nationalist rebels controlling the southwestern corner near Cadiz and Seville, and most of the north, except along the coast. Of course, of major concern for the legitimate government was the rebels' control of Toledo, just scant miles to the southwest of the capital, Madrid. The fighting continued. To the far east, in the port city of Barcelona, the rebel conspirators had assumed that the second-largest urban population would easily fall to them. After all, the pro-coup officers controlled 12,000 troops. Their job would be to rush to the center of the town and take control. Everything else would then fall into place. Leading them would be General Manuel Goddard, who would fly in from Majorca, one of the Balearic Islands, once it was subdued. The island fell fast enough, but those waiting for Goddard had somehow forgotten to figure in the possible resistance from the workers' unions. As for the assault guard and the civil guard, neither was their loyalty ascertained. Luis Campanis, the president of the wider Catalonia area, like others before him, refused to arm the labor unions, this despite the fact that he had received reports of what was taking place in Morocco and Seville. In fact, he was also given plans of what General Goddard intended for Barcelona. Still, he refused, probably from a fear of losing control to the lower classes. As for those blue-collar workers, they well knew their fate if the nationalists came to either control Spain or, at the very least, their home area. So, after the sun went down on July 18th, the local labor defense committees prepared for war. Armories were broken into with the help of a few pragmatic NCOs. Also, whatever guns could be found on board ships in the harbor were seized as well. Another Union group told of a shipment of dynamite stored in a nearby warehouse. That was cleared out as well, and others stayed up all night, crafting bombs of all sizes. Still others, with the right skills, absconded with as many cars and trucks as they could, reinforcing them with metal appendages. On each vehicle now employed in the fight for freedom, the letters of the various labor unions were painted on the top, and sighed, to negate death by friendly fire. The activity that night was hectic. The weather was hot and humid. As the sun came up, the day was to have seen Spain sponsoring its own Olympic Games, as the country had decided to boycott those being held in Nazi Germany. But with the building crisis, this was forgotten. The foreign athletes stayed in their hotels, as advised. Yet, when the Nationalist troops came the next day, some of those foreign athletes helped with the resistance. 
In time, some 200 of them would stay and fight for the Republican cause. During that early morning of July 19th, as the mostly unarmed workers waited and watched, and the athletes stayed in their rooms, rebel officers, not too far away, were offering their men rum. Now that the soldiers were more compliant, their leaders informed them of their objective. Madrid, supposedly, ordered them to march into Barcelona to secure it from the anarchists. So up the diagonal, one of the main streets, came the liquored-up soldiers. In another part of town came the Montesa Cavalry Regiment of Dragoons to support the infantry. But supporting both of these was the 7th Light Artillery Regiment of the St. Andrew Barracks. They had heard that 30,000 rifles were to be had in another set of barracks. Truly, these three groups represented overwhelming numbers and firepower. However, their movements were not coordinated. So when the infantry came in first, the fire alarms from various factories began to go off. The anxious workers launched themselves at the soldiers with such intensity that the supposed attackers ended up running all the way back to their barracks. Then the now exuberant workers dashed at the cavalry, who allowed themselves to be scattered, thus ineffectual. Yet some of the soldiers and horsemen made their way into town in smaller groups and made for either the Plaza de España or the Plaza de Catalunya. They soon had defensive positions set up in the Hotel Cologne, the Ritz, or the Central Telephone Exchange. Not that it mattered, as some of the more zany resistance workers drove trucks at high speeds into the recently settled group of military men. Then many of those homemade bombs constructed the night before were lobbed at the disoriented soldiers. As if that weren't enough, along rooftops were workers, with the relatively few rifles to hand, taking out anyone rash enough to stick their head out of hiding. So when General Goddard entered the city, his troops were faring poorly. Still, the general got to work. First, he arrested the divisional commander, Llano de la Encomienda, who had decided to stay loyal to Madrid. Next, he gathered what men he could and sent them to lay siege to the very structures being held by the civil workers, who were themselves rebelling against the desires of the rebel officers. Yet, as the hot day went by, locally made labor union flags were hoisted by the pro-Republican forces. To answer this challenge, some of Goddard's men climbed up various church towers to shoot down at the civilian resistors. This caused several priests to be accused of choosing the military side, and thus executed. Needless to say, with the heat, emotions ran high. By two o'clock in the afternoon, numerous peoples lay dead from both sides. But in tactical terms, it was now clear that the military could not prevail against such determined, nay, suicidal resistance. This decided Colonel Escobar of the civilian guards, who had been waiting to see who would win, to come down on the side of the civilians. He took his soldiers to President Compagnies and asked for orders. 
it was determined that Ghana soldiers in the various hotels had to be removed. So Escobar and company moved out. Because of their proficiency with their rifles, the civil guards were able to inflict enough casualties on the soldiers held up at the Hotel Cologne and the Ritz that they left, though in good order. As for the telephone exchange, that was recaptured by the workers alone. It was then that the workers cheered the civil guards, which had never happened before. Of course, the two sides still didn't trust each other, but it was a start. As hours had passed, the rum given to the soldiers that morning had worn off, such that when some of the workers yelled out to the 1st Mountain Artillery Regiment, who had two 75mm guns pointing at the workers, that they had been tricked by the real anarchists. The artillery unit turned its guns on their officers. The attack of Barcelona was winding down, to the civilians' advantage. Now that they had artillery, the civilian soldiers turned those guns on the headquarters of the Captain General, where Goddard was stationed. It only took a few bursts of shells to convince him to surrender. Given the bloodshed of the day, most wanted to shoot him right then and there. But a communist, Caridad Mercander, who just happened to be the mother of Trotsky's assassin, talked the crowd out of it. Goddard was taken to Compagnies, who had him broadcast his own capture, and that no one should be fighting on his orders anymore. As for the would-be ruler of Barcelona, he was tried a few weeks later and executed. The fight for Barcelona was practically over. One port near the city and one along the coast held out a little longer, but their fate was sealed in that the civilian resistors had access to local air power and now artillery. Still, that didn't matter to those who had lost friends these last few days. The last two barracks were stormed and taken. Unfortunately, many of the attackers, the civilians themselves, lost their lives or were wounded unnecessarily, as patience or coordination were beyond those who were filled with grief. By the end, there were some 600 deaths and 4,000 wounded for the decision of who would hold Barcelona. As stated previously, the military rebellion counted heavily on the Navy. In fact, many of the details had been worked out by General Franco himself with several of the senior naval officers. Once the rebellion started, the ships near the Canary Island were to make haste for Spanish Morocco, take the Army of Africa, and take them to the mainland. In fact, such was his confidence that General Quiepo de Lano announced over the radio that the Navy and mass had joined with the rebels and would soon bring over the Army of Africa so it may attack and purge Spain's great cities. If we can put aside for the moment that he was giving away the rebels' main attack plan, De Llano, being in the army, was not well versed in the world of the navy. Many of the naval officers felt that the rebels were right and wanted to help them. As for the men below them, they did not think exactly like the common soldiers, 
who were sympathetic to the common people, but they were certainly not happy with the way they were treated by their superiors, who felt that they were their superiors in every way possible. So when various army officers decided to join the rebellion and then asked their men to join them, thus instigating a crisis of conscience, the naval lower ranks were more proactive. Meaning on July 13th to decide what should be done if their officers asked to join the rebellion, the resulting vote was no. After all, why help officers take power when their attitude is to keep a firm line in between those who have and those who have not, and should not be allowed to cross to the other side? So, when a Madrid telegraphist, Benjamin Balboa, found out about a message from General Franco himself, saying the revolt was on, Balboa sent it immediately to the Ministry of Marine. But more than that, Balboa had the officer in charge of the radio section, Lieutenant Commander Ibanez, arrested when it was discovered he was in on the rebellion. The Minister of Marine, José Garral, who would soon become the leader of the government, radioed back to Balboa, now a hero, to send a naval-wide message of the day's events and to watch out for officers who couldn't be trusted. Calling them a gang of fascists, Balboa quickly carried out his orders. On that very day, there were three destroyers just off the coast of Melilla in North Africa. Those respective officers had already decided to join the rebellion. However, the vessels received the message from Balboa on two of the three ships. The third's radio was not functioning properly. Right away, the other two crews organized, armed themselves, and rushed their officers, putting them all under arrest. Leadership committees were formed, and the two destroyers left to head for the still loyal port of Cartagena. The lone destroyer, Churuca, and its accompanying gunboat went over to the rebels, and together they began to ferry over the army of Africa. It was a great blow to the plans of the rebels to have lost two of the three destroyers, but it was about to get worse for the conspirators. The next day, July 19th, the Republican government ordered all ships to head for the Straits of Gibraltar to block the transfer of rebel troops to the mainland. Again, the officers on a majority of the war vessels wanted to help the rebels, but they couldn't keep the word of what was happening from the lower ranks. Many civil wars broke out on most vessels. The lower ranks called ratings versus their officers. On the cruiser Miguel de Cervantes, the officers fought until they were all dead or captured. But on most ships, the ratings made short work of any would-be rebellion by simply taking control of the armory. One by one, messages were sent to the Ministry of Marine that the ships were under the crew's control and that they stood by the government in Madrid. Surprisingly, the wayward destroyer Churuca sent its own message as the crew, after making one delivery of rebel troops, seized control of the ship. The officers who got away tried to spin the counter-rebellions as mutinies, being ordered by Geralt himself, but the people quickly caught on to the truth. 
With the ships of the Spanish Navy being taken over by their crews, those naval officers who already declared for the uprising were starting to worry that they would all end up at the end of a noose. And General Emilio Mola, one of its leaders, joined them in this fear. It would only be worse for him the next day, July 20th, when General Sanjuro, the top rebel leader, died in a plane accident. However, help was on the way, from Berlin and Rome. As we have seen, Hitler and Mussolini assisted the rebellion early on, but it was German Junkers 52s sent over by Hitler that carried over most of the troops of the Army of Africa. Those soldiers that did come over by Spanish ships were escorted by the German pocket battleship Deutschland and the Admiral Scheer. Hitler would go on to say that Franco should build a statue to the Ju-52, as it had been so vital to his ultimate victory. To finish off with the Spanish Navy, for now, there was one large naval action in the early stage of the rebellion, though, ironically, it took place in port. At El Furol in northwestern Spain on July 19th, the labor unions went to the city governor and demanded guns from the arsenal. Yet his response was meaningless, because the man who commanded the naval supplies would not comply. What's more, the military in the port city then declared for the rebels. With their flag so raised, the 29th Marine Infantry and some units of the 3rd Regiment of Coastal Artillery chased away anyone hoping to resist for Madrid. Undeterred, the brave workers joined with what naval ratings were willing, and together they attacked the storage facility and took control. The fight was beginning to even out. Then sailors staying loyal to Madrid took control of a cruiser and the battleship España, both of which were in dry dock. Their guns were soon turned on the destroyer Velasco, whose officers had decided for the rebellion. However, the officers found that they could not turn their guns towards land, as important installations were in the way. The docked ships, along with the coastal batteries, made short work of the Velasco. Many deaths on board and on land resulted. Yet, as this was a civil war, there was more than one path to victory. The rebellious officers faked a signal from the Ministry of Marine to the España and the accompanying cruiser to surrender in order to reduce any further Spanish deaths. For whatever reason, the commander of the cruiser followed these orders without asking too many questions. But he did get a promise that his men would be unharmed. The promises were made and then broken. Many on the ships and those who had manned the coastal defenses were executed. It must be remembered that many, if not most, in Spain had ignored the world outside their borders since the end of the Great War. What was happening here, now, was a fight for the universe, relatively speaking. And in this universe, the quality of mercy could not be strained, or in our modern language, forced. Force was all. Mercy was nothing.
Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 101, Surprise Ending. Last time, we covered the fate of several cities as the Nationalists declared their rebellion. The army was split along ideological lines, whereas the navy was divided between the officers and the ratings. But what about the capital itself, Madrid? On the morning of July 20th, it seemed the rebellious military had its work cut out for it. Because surrounding the Montaña barracks, the troops inside were readying to help seize the capital, thousands of unarmed and armed citizens stood. But there were others, too. One was the retired captain of artillery, Orad de la Torre. He was currently helping position two 75mm Schneider guns at some 500 meters from the surrounded barracks. Later that day, a third gun, a 155mm piece, would be placed only 200 meters away. This standoff had been going on for days since the rebellion had started, and some citizens had already been shot after getting too close to the barracks. Still, the city seemed to be staying in the hands of the government, but that could change at any moment. The day before, Loyalist aircraft had dropped leaflets asking the soldiers to surrender, or to at least stay neutral. When that didn't work, bombs followed the leaflets. Only a few rebellious soldiers were killed. Still, the people cheered, which angered the shell-shocked men inside. They vented their frustration by firing shots into the crowds. Several people were killed, and the stakes in this game were raised. For whatever reason, the dropped leaflets, a sense of duty, or being from the capital themselves, many of the soldiers did want to surrender and waved a white flag. The people in response started walking towards the doors of the barracks. But this decision to surrender was not unanimous. Certainly, the officer commanding the machine guns disagreed. So as the people came closer, the gunners opened up. Those closest started falling to the ground as the rest ran away, screaming. Amazingly, this happened a few more times, as those inside could not agree altogether what course to take. By now, the large crowd was enraged and would have done anything to get inside, to get their hands on those who supposedly had tricked and then fired upon the people. Then one loyal sapper, having experience with explosives, managed to blow open the gate to the barracks just before an officer shot him dead in front of many witnesses. Still, this allowed the people in their thousands to rush in, regardless of the firing machine guns. Once the people were inside, a horrendous slaughter ensued. Every pent-up emotion was now released. Madrid would stay in the government's camp, and those soldiers near the capital were put on notice. Meanwhile, in the southern city of Granada, along the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, General Campins professed his loyalty to the Republican government to the local civil governor. But this claim, as we have seen, had been used as a trick before by others. Yet Campins kept his word. Not that it mattered, as those below him chose to rebel. Two of Campin's supporting colonels arrested the general. Later, he would be shot, and they got the insurrection started. 
The military seized the center of Granada on July 20th. The workers and those remaining loyal moved themselves into the Abbasin district and barricaded themselves in. The army attacked them for three days, yet the civilians, knowing what was in store for them, ferociously fought back. But then large guns were brought forward, and many civilians died in the shelling, or rather, from having large pieces of structure fall on them. But it would be the eastern port city of Valencia, the country's third largest city after Madrid and Barcelona, that would have its fate take the longest to determine, much to the detriment of its people. At first, the ranking army officer, General Monhey, couldn't decide which side to join, or rather, which side would most benefit himself. When the city of Valencia heard of the surrender of General Goddard, this weakened the military's cause in that many soldiers and their immediate commanders saw a successful rebellion slipping through their fingers. As for the men of the labor unions and their families, their decision was clear-cut, thus instantaneous. The local CNT right away declared a general strike and formed an executive committee, being helped by the popular front parties. They established themselves in the civil governor's office as his job, effectively, no longer existed. It hadn't helped that the former governor refused to, once again, hand weapons over to the workers. The dog workers, now that they had guns, aligned with the Popular Front, and together they occupied the local radio station, telephone exchange, and various other important buildings, important either for the life of the city or tactically important due to their location. But there was a dark moment when one of the groups of civil guards from the Popular Front Party joined with a group of the dock workers. When a detachment of the civil guard went out with the dock workers to take up a defensive position, the guards allowed the workers to get ahead of them, and then opened fire. The civil guards gathered up all the dead men's weapon and supplies, and only then left to join the nationalists, thinking that side would win ultimately. During all this, General Mohe still refused to pick a side, obviously waiting to see which side would win. On one hand, the nationalists didn't trust him because he wouldn't join them initially, and the workers didn't trust him because he wouldn't hand out weapons. So, Mohe's men sat there in their respective barracks. Before too long, a representative from Madrid a general, came to ask what the hell was taking so long to secure Valencia for the Republican government. When the general found out Monhe was the problem, that problem was removed. The barracks were stormed by the workers, but only after two weeks had gone by. The nationalists had lost another major city for their cause. But what's more, with Valencia secured, the capital could not be advanced on from the east. As covered previously, the important city of Seville in the southwest was won for the nationalists, but the how of that victory informed the entire country and those watching the Civil War just how ugly and cruel the struggle was going to be. Cuellipo de Llano's men had only managed to secure the center of Seville, that and its airfield, but it was enough to begin landing troops from North Africa, carried over by Hitler's JU-52s. 
the first to reach Seville, was the 5th Bandera, led by Major Castejon. Landing on July 25th, the regulars went in an ever-widening circle, clearing communities and other parts of the city. The people hid in their homes, having few weapons, but were determined to fight, if given the chance. But the regulars wisely and simply walked down the various streets and threw grenades into the windows of the homes. When the family members ran out, they were shot. But some of the women were saved purposefully to be used by the men. This debauchery is a constant in war, but Dayano took it to a new level. First, he actively encouraged the regulars to engage in such acts, but then would use the Radio Seville late into the night to broadcast in great detail what his men were doing. This was either psychological warfare at its cruelest, or it satiated his hateful soul, or both. Once word of this got out, and the press had Dejano's very own voice and words for proof, the world was shocked by what was happening certainly in this Catholic country. But on a more practical level, those who had stayed true to the government in Madrid used these stories to justify their reprisal killings. Nationalists who had been captured and were waiting trial now found themselves in front of a firing squad. This civil war was spiraling down into deeper depths of depravity. The initial phase of the civil war was over. The Nationalists had sprung their coup, but for various reasons, as we have seen, did not win outright. Now, the legitimate government reacted in a more proactive way. After gathering intelligence by using the railway's telegraph system, something the Nationalists had failed to do in many localities, the workers of Madrid, now armed, had locals who they could trust go out and confirm local situations in nearby towns and cities. With this done, armed groups were sent out to retake those nearby locations to help secure the capital. This is Warfare 101, but the workers turned soldiers were wisely not leaving anything to chance. Guadalajara, not quite 20 miles or 32 kilometers to the northeast of the capital, was recaptured, but only after intense fighting. But again, the armed workers knew what they were up against, and that's half the battle. On the way to Guadalajara, the town of Acala de Hernares was retaken to act as a jump-off point for the former city. To the east of the capital, Cuenca was also recaptured, further securing attack of Madrid from the east. To the northwest of the capital, worker soldiers were stationed along the Guadarrama Mountains in case General Mola's men decided to attack from further north. As it stood, each side had certain territory under their control, but Madrid was safe. Of course, this left the way south of the capital open, but that was being dealt with as well by the armed workers. Using anything with wheels and an engine, taxis, trucks, and quite frankly, stolen cars, Militiamen went south by southwest towards Toledo, which was in nationalist hands. There, Colonel Moscardo was readying what forces he had to receive Madrid's troops. A military academy was at Toledo, but as it was summer, most of the students, thankfully, were away. 
Still, a force of civil guards who had declared for the nationalists were sent there, and they were fortifying the Alcazar fortress. Joining them were phalangists who brought the total number to 1,100. Yet inside the stone fortress were more than just nationalist troops. There were also hostages, some 500 women and children. Ironically, Colonel Moscardo had not been in on the coup, but now that armed workers were on their way to him, and he was standing beside rebellious troops, his choice had been made for him. The siege of Alcazar was about to begin. Going back to Barcelona, along the coast, now that it seemed it would remain in the hands of the Republican government, those locals worried about their friends and family in Sargosa, just east of the port city, and a midway point between itself and the capital, though not in a straight line. So, just after the uprising was put down there, many loaded up into stolen trucks and cars and headed west. Along the way, the small villages in between, which had been taken over by the civil guard for the rebellion, caused these men to stop. They would retake the town and shoot anyone suspected of helping the nationalists. The force that had left Barcelona started out at 20,000 men, but as more and more groups of them stopped to retake towns, that number dwindled. Only a sub-force led by a mechanic, Buenaventura Duriti, continued on, not being tempted by something other than the main goal. But when his superior, Colonel Villalba, found out about the reduced force, he ordered Duriti to not rush on alone, but to no avail. The mechanics' forces approached the city, which was in the hands of the military, and reinforcements had recently strengthened its defenses. When the fighting started, it was anything but textbook. Some of Duriti's men tried putting their field guns on the back of their trucks, but normally the weight would be too much for the vehicle. Grenades of all kinds were thrown by both sides. Another thing both sides had in common was their contempt for anything other than overt bravery. One aspect of that was that they all loathed the idea of digging trenches. Bravery was all. Bravery would win the day. Yet as the two sides clashed, all they got for their bravery were dead comrades, with no ground changing hands. The Battle of Sergosa settled down into another siege. As strange as this may sound, only now, days into the struggle, did the Spanish realize they were in a civil war. The military had attempted a coup, certainly nothing new, but as it had failed, and no one on that side knew how to put the genie back in the bottle, and the legitimate government refused to back down, the two sides were now staring at a protracted war, which neither side was ready for. Greetings, members. I am so sorry this is late. This last weekend, when I normally would have done this, I participated in the Richmond 10K race. At my age, that was very stupid and foolish, and I got hurt, but I did finish. So there's a medal around my neck, and there were tears in my eyes. Anyway, so I'm very sorry. Um, this is going to sound very strange, but as I'm reading about the Spanish Civil War, I cannot help 
but think about that movie Ants, which is really old. So um, if you want to watch it with your kids or whatever, go back and look at it. But I remember there's a scene where the general ant who's trying to um, basically wipe out the colony, but just keeps his troops, keeps saying, this is for the good of the colony. And one of them, the, I guess the main character, the main ant character, retorts back, uh, we are the colony. So again, for the military, the, I, I'm trying to imagine what they're thinking we are all that really matter. We keep the state safe from enemies. We have tradition and honor and history on our side. You were just people. You were just what. And so I just, I just could not help but in, um, in some way, just compare it to that movie and that and that general's uh, attitude, the ant and these generals in Spain at this time. So that again probably sounds weird. I just had to share that with you. But go out and sh go back and check that movie out. Yes, it's very old. Um, but it just reminds me of that mentality. And if the military is everything and the people are nothing, that's just a, a scary mentality that I would hate to see repeated anywhere. Because uh, the military, like the politicians and like police and everyone else, they're there to serve a purpose to protect and defend the citizens, not to take their place as the all-important aspect of the country. So let me know if you agree, disagree. Uh, I'd be interested to, to hear your feelings because this, um, this is a very complex issue. I mean, you've got religion, you've got class class struggle, you've got everything in here. So you can just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from some of you. And if I get some good questions or some good positions, I'd be happy to read them after the next episode. So again, very sorry these are late. Take care, everyone.